You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aaron Fishman, and shortly I'll be joined by my brother, Joshua. On this episode, social media director and all-around basketball fanatic, Adina Andrews, graces us with her presence. She helps us break down the New York Knicks' early season, their team coming in with much higher expectations than in recent years, but five of their top eight players by minutes played wore a different uniform last year. So we'll talk about that process of integrating those players and Phil Jackson's tenure as president more broadly. Then, changing gears, we'll get a chance to learn about Adina's enlightening recent visit to Cuba, where she encountered the African diaspora up close, and in the process, helped her mom check an item off her bucket list. Shall we begin? Hey, Adina. It's good to have you on. Hello. Thank you for having me, guys. It's our pleasure. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. We know you're a really big Knicks fan. You've been following them for many years. And they had a really interesting offseason. Phil Jackson's third full season now as team president. Lots of changes to the personnel. How are you feeling about the team right now? Well... Uh, how am I feeling? How am I feeling? I think I'm kind of like every other New York Knicks fan. You know, we start the season and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to win the chip. It's going to be ours and all this other stuff. I think that's what New Yorkers do best is we overreact, <laughs> um, especially because the Knicks are really good at getting great names and to get us excited, you know. So that's where I'm at. I'm at the you know, bring on the second round of the playoffs because I haven't seen it in so long place. That's where I'm at. There is a noise that you made at the beginning of your answer that I think probably sums up how many Knicks fans feel. It was kind of like the expectations are really high. They're really mediocre so far. But they're also (laughs) just a really new unit, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like every year we have a new unit, though, and that's our excuse. Like, we're in a building year. We're in a building year. But, like... You know, we've built enough buildings here to populate downtown Manhattan, you know, <laughs> on the New York Knicks. And, and yeah, they are underperforming. But I think anything less than, you know, a five to ten game winning streak is underperforming for New York Knicks fans because the expectations are just so high. Um, but there are glimpses of glory and glimpses of them getting it together. And it, even though it's super early in the season. So I'm happy about that. Speaking of New Yorkers' tendency to overreact, one of the city's newest residents, Derek Rose, called the Knicks the super team in the offseason. Do you think that's premature? Yeah, it was a little premature. Like, bless his heart. I love Derek Rose. I dig his style of play and how he just, you know, puts it all on the floor, has no regard for his own body uh, when he goes to the hoop. And so I love his passion and, you know, how he made the people of Chicago feel. I really want... To, I want New York to embrace him like that also. Um, but yeah, the super team thing, I think it was just, for lack of a better word at that time, you know, um, definitely wasn't a super team. Like if this was six years ago, seven years ago, when everybody's knees were fresh and things, yeah, super team, but not now. 
Yeah, maybe a, a super starting lineup with Carmelo, D. Rose, Porzingis, Noah. They they have a good starting lineup. Yes, they 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 do. They do do. Now, is it super though? <laughs> I think it's like it's um maybe extraordinary is a word. Um, <laughs> super implies like out of this world powers to me but that's like the warriors and clippers i think exactly yeah like like kevin durant going to the warriors like that was that's super team that's the type of stuff that you stop because of basketball reasons and this isn't a basketball reason situation i think so when we're there then i think you call it super team and the depth seems to be lacking at least so far but the roster overall seems to be leaps and bounds improved from a season ago yeah, and um, I definitely think so a season ago. And, uh, you know, Phil made the move to get Przingis, um, what was it, like, was it two years ago? Yeah, and so, you know, we had to wait for this. Because uh, I remember when Phil selected and I was like, oh, who the hell is this kid? Like, what are we doing? And I think it was just about waiting for the development and trusting the process. And so we've, um, we're kind of seeing that come to fruition and we're bearing the fruits of our labor uh, our Phil Jackson labor. And I think we just, you know, needed to trust him for a while. And speaking of Phil Jackson, he brought in a lot of new players, Noah Rose, Brandon Jennings, Courtney Lee, and Justin Holiday. Those are five of the top eight players in minutes, all new additions and mm-hmm. a new head coach. So do you expect the team to get better as the players gel? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely barring any like internal conflicts. I mean, the, the team just survived Derek Rose's rape trial. Like if that was a testament to their um, steadfastness and their camaraderie for each other, especially in New York with the, the media um, and everything, I think something like that, if it didn't break them, it made them stronger. And as they get better and they start to learn and trust each other, like I think I saw Przingis hit Mello with a, um, a no look the other day. And I was like, that was pure trust, you know, for Przingis to know he was there and, uh, and, and for Mello to trust his teammate. Like, so, so it's, it's, we're only going up from here. I, yeah. I, I don't doubt it at all. I don't doubt it at all. I think that, that no look pass is um, evidence of the process beginning to unfold. Rose missed three weeks of training camp due to the yep. court case. Yep. And it, it seems like they're definitely making improvement already. Yeah. Not only, I mean, it's the process and it's also just, evidence of Przingis going hamburger helper on everyone. <laughs> and um, I'm just really excited to see him develop as a player. Really, I'm excited to see him develop as a player. And as a person, you know, he was a foreigner. And I really, really feel like he is getting his official New York like license right now, you know, because I think the other day on the court, he, he mouthed the words F out of here. And I was like, that's what New Yorkers say all the time. I mean, when you don't have my bagel with bacon, egg and cheese, F out of here. You know, when, when there's too much traffic, it's F out of here. And so I just feel like I know at home, Przingis is wearing Tim's and a, and a Yankee fitted at all times. Like he is coming of age in his New York self and I'm loving it. I think he's found his home. Did you see the tongue wag also? Yeah, that, that tongue wag is very very scary but if that's what he, that's what he likes then let's do it for i think creepy might be a better word than scary yes creepy oh. creepy do you guys remember glenn big baby davis his little tongue wag like it's yeah. when he was drooling like crazy or was yeah, that a different one no I, yeah he was drooling too it's like borderline that like 
Glenn Big Baby Davis's drool was way worse, but yeah. it's it's creeping up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're on the same page here because I wanted to ask about Chris Stops, though. He is just playing out of his mind right now. Carmelo still gets the most shots on the team, but uh-huh. he's doing so many exciting things on the court. What do you think for him is the next step in his progression? For Melo? For Kristaps. Oh, for Kristaps. Oh, man. I mean, the other day I saw him take hit two threes. And I was just like, he's not supposed to be doing this. Like, the league is not ready for someone that big to be um, hitting outside shots like that. So I would like to see him develop more on the outside. Like, he's been – there's evidence, you know, that he can – go to the basket, be aggressive. And uh, he even hit the the one-legged fadeaway a la Dirk Nowitzki the other day. Oh, yeah. uh, so there's evidence that he could he can do that. But I say, you know, if you could get the outside shot in your arsenal as a big man, like no one can block that because, A, they just can't get that high. So I would love to see, you know, maybe not this season, but in the next, him to become some kind of outside threat for the Knicks. Yeah, and for a while, he's been taking threes, and, and he's been pretty good at it. He continues yeah. to get better. Yes. But there's also been talk, I think Phil Jackson said this in his interview with Jackie McMullen, that just how people play nowadays, and also just in Europe, the yep. style of play, that he's not really that accustomed to posting up at times. Uh-huh. He true. doesn't really have that game, but he obviously has the size to. Would you like to see him just play a more versatile style of offense where he can beat you in a ton of different ways and utilize that height a little bit more? Well, I I think that's with anybody. You know, I think the person who does that the best in the league is Kevin Durant. Like Kevin Durant can post you up. Kevin Durant can hit from outside. Kevin Durant will cross you over, you know, and not everybody can be that. And with uh, Kristaps being so big, that's what we expect of him. But I think we need to recognize the evolution of the big man in the NBA and the big man does not post up anymore. It is very rare that you're finding the big man doing that. And like you said, it's the evolution of the game. So is it really going to benefit him to kind of swim upstream uh, in that way? Or should he literally evolve? Because, I mean, if you're still posting up, right, you're, you're playing in an older style of game. So is he evolving at all or is he just sticking to the same thing? So I'm not mad if a big man wants to, you know, to go wild and free outside of, um, outside of the post. Um, and I encourage him to do that. I think also maybe some type of mixing and matching, but I agree with you that it's more of an antiquated style. But if you have more weapons in your arsenal, I think that just makes you so much tougher to defend. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. Like, you know, I think everyone should do everything. I mean, because, you know, in that case, it's like, yo, why don't we put Steph in the post? And like, so we need everybody to do everything. Because when you have those players that can do everything, you're like, Okay, that that's that's obviously the the end goal for everybody, but I definitely agree. The man who defied conventional wisdom and decided to draft Porzingis, Phil Jackson, yes. has an opt-out clause in his contract after the season. I know he's 71, but how surprising would it be if he exercised it and left? Uh, not surprising at all. I mean, A, it's New York, people come and they go. Um, it's a stressful position. He is 71. And, um, you know, you can be president at 70, apparently, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> so it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's, it is a very super stressful position. I'm not necessarily sure if it's the best thing for the Knicks, just because of the constant um, 
transitions and turnover that we experience. But I would love to see, you know, let's say, you know, you have Phil build the build the team and then someone comes in and can someone young and feisty and energetic come in and lead them to, you know, the postseason. That he, you know, Phil kind of being the architect and then somebody driving the boat. I, I wouldn't mind that. Would it be devastating if he left though? The team's improved every season under him and he seems to have a, a specific plan that someone might not be able to to follow? Um, I don't think it it would be devastating to like the New York Knicks fans. A, because I don't think a lot of people like him. Um, just, you know, there's this whole triangle, triangle, and we're like, get over it, Phil. Um, so I don't think we're necessarily married to him. And he also hasn't like, he hasn't made himself a presence, you know, outside of some errant comments in the press and everything like that. He's just been really, really quiet in my, for, for my opinion. So it's like, he's the silent sensei and the silent sensei is doing his job in the background. And if he was to leave, I don't think it would be so devastating. It is great to see that the Knicks have improved every year, obviously, but it's the Knicks too. So it's like, you ain't got nowhere to go, but up at times. Um, so, yeah. About those errant comments that you mentioned, using the word posse, which um, has widely been considered coded language uh-huh. to diminish the accomplishments of young black men. What are your opinions about the comments you made? Yeah, I had, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that interests me the most, the place where sports and culture intersect. And, um, you know, I had a long discussion with my fiance about it. And, you know, Phil is a very, very smart man. And I think his comments were not intentional, but it was a poor choice of words. I definitely think it was a poor choice of words. I've experienced been on the receiving end of things like that before. And I've also been on the giving end and not knowing, uh, you know, something was the wrong word to use and then being extremely apologetic about it afterwards. So, you know, it was a poor choice of words on his end. And I think LeBron James was right to, to say something about it. When these things happen, in my opinion, it's unfortunate, but also it, it provides a really teachable moment, and I think mm-hmm. it gets the dialogue going. Yeah. So for that, I'm grateful that it happened, and a mm-hmm. lot of these things continue to happen. I'm with you. It's just mm-hmm. so fascinating when sports and culture intersect, and if you notice it, because it's constantly happening, but yeah. are people talking about it? Are they noting um, what's gone on? And, and um, yeah, so I love the dialogue. Yeah. And I wanted to ask this before when you mentioned him in the triangle. It's kind of interesting. It seems like, again, I'm alluding to that interview with Jackie Mack. He uh-huh. kind of diminished, in my sense, how important the triangle is to him. And I'm just I'm just projecting here because I don't know him personally and I haven't talked uh-huh. to him about it, obviously. But it seems like he's more invested in the triangle than he's letting on. Um, and when he's asked about it, he says, no, no, I don't care. It's just when they do it, I want them to do it properly. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like he just had so much success during his coaching career with it. And he he wants them to use it, but it may not fit as much in today's NBA. Uh-huh. Talk a little bit about that paradox. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. There are probably elements of the triangle that are still being incorporated in other plays. And I can see Phil just being like an extreme perfectionist about things, like you said. And like you said in the interview, when he uh, 
when they do it, he wants them to do it right and do it perfectly. Um, so I could just see him being an extremist on that end. But like we said earlier, you know, he's getting older. He's the the NBA is evolving, and like I said before, Phil's a very smart man, and he's kind of just going with the flow. And I think that's what life is about and evolving. And if anybody knows, you know, the meaning of life more than anybody else in this world is probably Phil, the Zen master. So he's he's evolving. Um, it's just like anybody, it's probably a little difficult. The team seems to be evolving around new head coach Jeff Hornacek. He had a lot of buzz when when he was just starting out his head coaching career in Phoenix. What are your early impressions of him? Um, You know, I think the team respects him. So I, I think, especially, you know, with his MBA acumen and resume. So I think that's important. And it, it seems like he's gelling well with the team. And I, I could see nothing but I guess greener pastures and an upward trend with him and the team. But I think it it may be a little too early to tell the tale of the tape in this end. It was good talking to you about the Knicks. Now we're going to transition. (laughs) Not awkward at all to something (laughs) not really that closely related, I don't think. I'm like, what can help me find something? Let me see. Let me see. Um, Okay, here, let me try this. So uh, sports is a, is a universal language and when you go to other countries, sometimes you just can't speak the language. And you know how I know that? Because I just recently went to Cuba. Oh, and, yeah. You did. <laughs> yeah, I did. went to Cuba. And sometimes um, I couldn't speak the language, but someone would walk up to me and they'd ask me where I was from. I'd say Estados Unidos. And then they'd point to their Angels hat or they'd point to their Seattle Mariners hat. Yeah, and baseball so, is huge there. Exactly. And so, you know, it showed that they understood where I come from. And of course I know it's a national pastime in their country. So it was the one thing sports that united us. Boom. <laughs> you did it. Thanks. Yeah. It took a while, but I got there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's your mom. It was your mom's 60th birthday. Happy birthday to her. Thank you. She'll be really happy to hear that. How long were you guys there? We were there for about six days and we went with a, tour group called Friendly Planet Travel. I've traveled with them to Thailand and Kenya before. So, and it was about 18 people on our tour and it was me, my mom, my fiance. Okay. So you were there during the U.S. election? Yes. Yeah. Um, How was that? (laughs) You know, it was interesting uh, just because we watched it with a bunch of Americans and foreigners, foreigners from like other countries, not just Cuba. And you know, you try to just keep quiet because you don't know. We're sitting in a bar watching it, so you don't know everybody's political views. And it's kind of, you know, taboo to talk about politics. But it was such a contentious election. And watching the the television, like we had like a 6.30 wake up call. But, you know, the election goes well into the into the night. And so at like around 11.30, we're all like, can we tap out? What's going to happen? You know, who am I going to wake up to be my president? So that was kind of like the biggest thing is we were tired and how can we go to bed? But then, you know, you wake up to the results. And um, it's interesting because, like I said, people ask you where you're from, because if you're looking at a map and, you know, you look like a tourist, people actually where you're from. And sometimes I'd say, you know, the United States and people would say, oh, the greatest country in the world. And I'm like, wow, look, that's how we're viewed by other people. And Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, somebody else would say, oh, Donald Trump, like that's all they could say in English. And they would not only were they were just like asking me what happened, you know, how did he get elected? And then they would also ask me, 
you know, mostly because they were scared of what it would do to their country because mm-hmm. um, some of the rules had been lifted or lightened, you know, in terms of relationship between U.S. US and Cuba. So they were very nervous about what this election meant for their country. Yeah, it's really interesting. One thing that I did want to talk about, and you alluded to it, was the changing relationship between the two countries. It was 54 years, I believe, or almost, that the two embassies were closed. And then President Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro announced almost two years ago that the countries would begin normalizing relations. Mm -hmm. And that paved the way for you guys to be able to visit. That wouldn't have been able to happen. I think you mentioned that it was on her bucket list that she had wanted to do it for a long time. Is that true? Yeah. um, You know, my mom is somewhat of a revolutionary and she's always been like, you know, fuck the system kind of thing. And um, going away to Cuba was always her kind of her respite. You know, when life would get too hard, she's like, I'm going to go to Cuba and never come back. And honestly, it seemed like a pipe dream when we, when we would say it, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But when it came to fruition uh, and we saw a tour group open up, she immediately booked it. She had just recently been retired and immediately booked it. And we figured, why not go along with her? So, yeah, it definitely was on a bucket list. And I mean, you also kind of want to get there before the rest of the world gets there and it gets too Americanized. I mean, that's going to take a long time. You know, people think McDonald's is going to get there tomorrow. It's not <laughs> happening because like right. McDonald's doesn't even have like the infrastructure. The, the, the streets aren't even well lit um, there and everyone doesn't take credit cards. Like, you know, maybe 2% of the hotels, I mean, 2% of the places and they were hotels if they took credit cards. Um, so the infrastructure needs to be there for everything to get as Americanized as we think it is. But it was nice to be there before, you know, it got too tainted in a sense. It's weird saying President-elect Trump, still not yeah. used to that. So he said a lot of things, obviously, on the campaign trail, often contradictory of himself. He said earlier in the campaign, but I don't think he likely had that much of a chance to think about it, that 50 plus years has been long enough, essentially agreeing with what Obama has been doing. And then later on in the campaign, he was much more hardline, siding with senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz against dealing with the Cuban regime, basically unless they meet a list of our demands. Whereas Obama is more on the side of national sovereignty. Basically, we can't force any country other than our own to do what we want. And Mm -hmm. Obama's position is that if we open up the dialogue, we open up travel, trade, economic interactions, that that will lead to democratization. And then the the polar opposite view is now, unless they're more of a democracy, we're not going to deal with them. Has that come up at all in in any of um, your visits with people when you were there? No, I um not at you know as so in depth. We had a Cuban our one of our tour guides was Cuban. She's a native of Cuba. And you know, you have the limited conversations you can have with people with the um the language barrier because my Spanish is it like I mean I took Spanish still my sophomore year high in college, but I feel like I still speak like a third grader. So it's um it, you know it's rather difficult to have complex conversations like that. However, you just got to see the results of everything you talked about. Like, for example, our Cuban tour guide, she asked our American tour guide to bring her down a stuffed animal of Winnie the Pooh because her nephew really wanted it. And it's like, wow. You couldn't get that anywhere else except for to ask someone from America to bring it to you. Um, You know, you also saw the results of embargoes. Um, Well, it's funny because we call it an embargo, but the uh, 
our Cuban tour guide told us that it's called a blockade there, mostly because just like blockade has more yeah. of an intense. Yeah, yeah, it has more of an intense. Yeah, the connotation is like you're blocking us. You're not just kind of slowing something down. You're blocking us and impeding us from progress. Uh, so that's how they speak of it. And um, you know, so those are the conversations we had, and kind of enlightening, you know, us about the past. And you know, somebody in our tour guide tour group, I think, ignorantly brought up the Russian missile crisis while we were talking to our our tour guide, like, why don't, you know, you guys act like you didn't do anything and let's talk about the Russian, Russian missile crisis. If you won't bring it up, I will. And I'm like, calm down, angry person. First of all, second of all, the, the Russian missile crisis was a retaliation effort because, you know, a, we attacked them, we left them desolate and they, they were befriending another communist country that took advantage of them. So like, you know, every action has a reaction. And I think people need to see that in history. And that was the kind of stuff that we, we witnessed and and talked about. Um, but that trip, you know, I felt like I was a part of history because I get to come back and be on a podcast or come back and tell all my friends and my coworkers just what a wonderful country Cuba is and how wonderful the people are and hopefully write my legislator and keep the, the conversation open uh, between the countries and say, you know, show that my our enemy, quote unquote, what we used to think they were, they're not so bad at all. And so I was definitely just a kind of part of an, an effort and an educational effort going down there. Being in Cuba for six days, you obviously immersed yourself into the culture. What was the cultural exchange like? Uh, a lot of food. <laughs> you know, I think on the surface, you know, there, there are things that, are, that culture is made up of on the surface. It's food, music, and writing, you know, your literature. So those are things on the surface. And, you know, I got some recommendations on good books to read. It was like Cuba in the American imagination, basically how Americans viewed Cuba um, during the, you know, missile crisis and beyond. So like going to pick that up and read about it. Um, and the cultural experience that I really enjoyed the most being an African-American here was learning about the African diaspora and how it exists in, in Cuba. Um, you know, the, the, the triangle trade of slavery, um, Cuba and the Caribbean was just one stop in the trade and, and the South and the U S South was another stop and how much, um, I actually have in common with the Cubans, like for example, we I saw some Cubans. They were doing um, stepping, and I'm part of a historically black sorority. And one of our traditions is we step. We use it's called it's like body percussion, and they were doing like the same exact steps that I learned at USC in college. And it just makes you feel more connected. It makes you feel not so lost in this world and not so without culture. So it was it was humbling and it was enlightening to see that kind of stuff. And to see that, like, I look just like a lot of them. A lot of times my mom, my mom was mistaken for a Cuban, um, that, you know, and Cubans come in all shapes, sizes and colors too. But, uh, you know, they look like they could live down the block and be my uncle. So that kind of stuff is great. It's amazing how you can go to a country so far away and seemingly such a different culture and have these similarities like knowing knowing how to do the same steps that they do there, it's it's just amazing. I mean, or even something as little as like eating the same foods. You know, I my family is originally from Jamaica. We call it you know sweet plantains. They call it maduros or just or platanos. You know, and it's like it's the same foods and just growing up in a 
yeah, and just like the same foods. What else was like a lot? Oh, and just, you know, they had a book fair and they had books on basketball and, and but they were in Spanish and just explaining the game of basketball and just how in the, at the end of the day, we're just all so similar. It's not even funny. Like everyone, black, white, like we're just all so similar. And I think if we saw that in each other, the world would be a better place, honestly. Speaking of race, obviously mm-hmm. a social con- uh, construct. 62% of Cubans have at least some African descent because of the diaspora. And a lot of people of color living in Havana and Eastern yeah. Cuba, since there are a lot of people of mixed race who consider blackness to be a complicated matter, how would you say you um, noticed people view race in Cuba? You know, it was interesting because um, our tour guide told us that it's not an issue there. Um you know, because like you said, it is, it is such a melting pot, like, and not just melting pot in the sense that, oh, we have a lot of Spaniards, we have a lot of um, Africans, and we have a lot of um, like native, um, Native American type subcultures, but really like one person can be mixed with like five different things because of the way Cuba was built, you know, with, but having natives already there and then the Spaniards coming over and then uh, the Spaniards bringing African American, Africans over. So everyone literally like, it's kind of what America is becoming where everyone's going to be like one eighth of something in about 10, 15 years. So, you know, our, our tour guide spoke about like, because of that, it's not such a strong construct as it is here in the States. But I will say, speaking to other Cubans, um, mostly dark-skinned ones, they do feel some, I guess, I don't know what the word is, they do feel treated differently at times, the darker ones. And, and you know, whether that was just the two to three I spoke to, uh, but they, they did express that and they expressed some solidarity with me because of the way we both look. Um, but I, I, you know, I can see both point of views because like I said, people in Cuba, the, the melting pot is real there. Like, you know, I look at America as more of a salad bowl than a melting pot right now. It'll be a melting pot in like, you know, once my nephew's generation is done, uh, growing up, but, um, they are definitely very mixed up there. And so, yeah, so many people have mixed race in Cuba, and it's interesting how racial identities are formed so differently. Yeah. I read in a couple of sources, and I know this obviously from living in the U.S., if you have any um, black ancestry, you're considered black. Like Obama is biracial, but he's black according to society. And uh, in Cuba, from what I was reading, it's often the opposite, where if you have any white ancestry, you're white. It's just <laughs> about that, how it's just so different. I know, right? I, di- I didn't read that, but that's, um, that's very interesting. I honestly think, because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, no one contests your blood, right? I think it's all about what we look like phenotypically on the outside. And that's where this construct comes from. That's where how people treat you. Because like you said, if you have one drop of white, as you said, for Cuba, and you're considered white. However, a very, very dark-skinned person can have, um, you know, Anglo-European blood. However, they won't be treated like so because of right. the way they look. You know, they can't carry around a, a white card or anything like that. So, um, I, you know, I honestly think, like you said, it's a social construct that we've created due to um, outward appearances. And it, 
that's that's what's happening. There is a cool quote that I read. It's attributed to author and activist Randall Robinson, who once said it to Nelson Mandela. The blood that unites us is thicker than the water that divides us. Oh, I, think, I like that one. Yeah, I think it's so fitting for your trip because um, you felt very connected, it sounds like. And it felt like, like in a way, you were home. Am I getting the right impression? Yeah, like you, you, you feel home. You feel, um, I think, you know, uh, as an African-American, I, unless you read up on your history, all you're going to get is, you know, Martin Luther King and not even Harriet Tubman in school. You know, you're going to get like this. You're going to get your George Washington Carvers. You're going to get your, um, yeah, you're going to get your Phyllis Wheatleys. And then you feel just disconnected. You wonder, who am I and what am I made up of? And so when you go to these places, you actually get a better sense of self um, and know that you are, that there's something larger than you, that you can withstand the harshest um, atrocities that are put up against you. So you feel grounded. I think that's the word is, is grounded. Um, and you feel connected to something, definitely. But like you said, um, I, I, I was in Jamaica once and this guy, this guy told me, he said, I and I as one people, you may not be my neighbor, but you're my brother. And that's what it is. You may be, you know, oceans away from me, but you're still my brother in some form, um, shape or form. And that's how I felt in Cuba. You didn't have an internet, right? Was it the whole trip? Yes. <laughs> was that liberating? <laughs> well, you know, you said, was it what? Was it liberating? Because you're yeah. online all day, all your life, right? Exactly. The social media manager, like coming straight out of school, I was, you know, working in HTML from the NBA. So it's like, I'm always on the internet. I'm on the internet right now talking to you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm like researching grammar books for my sorority sister because she oh, wants to. Yeah, that's what I do. Um, but what was I going to say? Yeah. So apparently our hotel did have Wi-Fi, but of course you had to pay for it. And I was like, to hell with that. So, um, you know, I wasn't going to pay for it, especially because the only, if you go online, then I'm probably going to like start doing work. And if I'm not being paid to work or they're not paying for my internet, then like, why should I be there? Um, and then, you know, we all have to unplug it sometime and it's, it's healthy. Not only is it healthy, but you come back and you're a better employee, you're a better person. Um, it was, it was kind of weird in the first day because you just like out of habit, you pick up your cell phone and like try to refresh your Twitter feed. And you're just like, Oh, look, I saw that tweet yesterday. So then you realize you don't have to tweet everything. You don't have to take a photo of an Instagram of everything. It was definitely liberating, but the only connection I really had to the outside world was watching CNN with the election. And so because I'm a news junkie and an information junkie, I watched every morning and every night before I went to bed. I, yeah, I unfortunately did too. I've been glued to all the political news. A lot uh -huh. going on lately. A lot of changes. A lot of people mm -hmm. are nervous and scared. A lot yeah. of people are excited. Mm -hmm. Very, it seems like, bitterly divided country. Mm -hmm. But as we wind down, I just want to just focus more closely on some of the things that you broadly mentioned, but more specific. So I wanted to hear like food, for instance, uh -huh. were there certain dishes or things that you tried that just stood out as just being amazing so or something like, totally different than you've ever had? Um, let me see. Uh, oh, they make really good soups out of like taro root. So taro root, I think it's like a potato. So, cause the soup was very creamy um, and it's called taro root. And so there would be some chips made out of them. And I, so I think they're just like a, 
platform of potato. That was really, really good. Um, and then I've seen Ropa Vieja like on menus all the time. I just never try it because I'm not a very experimental person. But, you know, it was like when in Rome and the Ropa Vieja, it was like that or two other things on the menu. So I tried it and it's my new favorite dish and I'll be ordering it all the time. It's basically like a shredded beef in, mar- in some kind of marinara sauce. And it was everything. That's cool that you're adventurous and you left your comfort zone for that. You're not in Cuba very often. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, So, but, and I will say like the mojito is the drink of Cuba. And I hope Cubans don't get mad at me, but I was not impressed. I've had good mojitos, but not in Cuba. So yeah, um, so maybe I'm just like used to it. Maybe yeah, we're used to the Americanized version. Exactly. We're like, where's the, where's all the syrup or something? So maybe that's why like I wasn't impressed. But the rum was great, and I brought back four bottles of it. So that's great. Uh, What about the classic cars? I saw you tweeted about that. Those looked really cool. Yeah, the classic cars. I'm not so much of a car enthusiast, so I couldn't like tell you what kind they were and stuff. But um, me either. But they looked nice. (laughs) Yeah, that. they were just dope to look at. Uh, my fiance is a car enthusiast and he was just like in heaven, you know, he was going looking under the hood. One night we rode in one, you can ride in them like a taxi. And it was, there are no seatbelts. So that was interesting. But yeah, they were, they were really cool looking. It was great. Because of the decades of the embargo, or should I say blockade, <laughs> it probably felt like you're in a time capsule in a certain sense, right? Just a little bit. Yeah, that's what everyone says when you walk down. Not only do you feel like in a time capsule, um, just like even, you know, the old buildings and the streets like that, you know, you can tell they're trying their best to upkeep. But I mean, you mm-hmm. can only paint a building so many times over, you know, 70 years or so. But it was a good thing. Like one of our, somebody in our tour said, yeah, and maybe if they fixed up the buildings and got newer hotels, Cuba would get more tourists. And I was like, no, that's not the point. Like, if I wanted new hotels, I'd go to Aruba. So, you know, Cuba is, that is its charm, the vintage, and I don't ever really want it to change. I love it. Did you learn anything about any of the uh, religions practiced there? I only... um, heard about i didn't really learn too much it was like this santori religion Mm -hmm. so that's just another thing that i got to read up on it seemed like it was something that mixed um some traditions from africa from west africa and they called it santori and some people still um practice it so that was uh, the only thing that was new to me yeah just so many cultural aspects of cuba are african inspired from music to dance to art to religion and i we could go on and on yeah. So I I just think that's fascinating and, and just amazing that you got the opportunity to experience it. Mm-hmm. So much is changing with or could be changing with Cuban-American relations, especially with the presidential election and, and the changes there. So who knows if yeah. we'll be able to visit Cuba much longer. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to stay tuned, but mm-hmm. I really appreciate you coming on just such a unique interview for us and I'm really <laughs> glad and I know my co-hosts are really glad and appreciative that you agreed to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Uh, like I said, the, my favorite part of life is when sports and culture intersect and I got to talk about both of them on this podcast. So I really appreciate you. Thanks for giving a Trojan something to smile about for a day. No problem. <laughs> you made a lot of too. Yeah, I learned a lot that I didn't know. Oh, that's great. So um, you can put my check in the mail. It's cool.